0: I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. We are here to discuss The Last Boy Scout, which came out in 1991. It was directed by Tony Scott. They were trying to clean up their acts. You vacuum, I'll dust. When they got dragged into the dirty world of sports corruption. So you're going to bribe some senators to legalize again? They got one shot. What am I going to do? Point at the bad guys and shoot! To get the goods ah! On the bad guys This once I would like to hear you scream Play some rap music I <laughs> these Take your best shot If they don't kill each other First Bruce Willis Damon Williams The last Boy Scout Danger's my middle name Lance tell anybody i kill you. It stars Bruce Willis, Damon Wayans, Chelsea Field, Halle Berry, Noble Willingham, Taylor Negron, and Danielle Harris. The genre would be buddy action comedy slash football crime drama. To start things off, this film has one of the most attention-grabbing opening seven minutes that I can recall seeing in theaters or anywhere else for that matter. We start with the opening credit sequence for a fictional network football program which feels very accurate to the early 90s, when there was a similar one for Monday Night Football. We then join Billy Cole, a strung-out wide receiver with the fictional L.A. Stallions, who is played by future Taibo phenomenon, Billy Blanks. We see him in a locker room during halftime. Cole looks very stressed, but not just about the game, as it is later revealed that he also has a massive gambling debt. He suddenly receives a threatening phone call from Milo, who is played by stand-up comedian Taylor Negron, but sounds very sinister, and is basically telling him he needs to win or else. Hello? Hello, William. This is Milo. There's a lot of money riding on this game tonight. You better start scoring some touchdowns, William. Just do whatever it takes, understood? Or else your history. After he hangs up the phone, Billy Cole looks grimly in the mirror, loads up on painkillers, sticks a loaded gun in his pants, and heads out to the field for the second half of the football game. With the rain pouring down during a catching play, as he's running with the ball, he pulls out his gun, and he shoots three opposing players down the field. Then he stops to take a knee. Then, as folks have gathered on the field to watch in shock as he's on his knees holding up this gun, Billy Cole then says... (sighs) And then shoots himself in the head. Now, how could you possibly top a provocative opening sequence like that? Well, the short answer for this particular movie is that you don't. What follows afterwards is a mostly standard buddy cop action comedy, which sometimes dips into waters that are that dark and cynical, but is more concerned with just simply entertaining you on a base level, with banter, explosions, headshots, strippers football talk, profane preteens, and lots of cigarettes. And that's okay, because it works as a compelling buddy movie. Bruce Willis basically plays a more depressed version of his John McClane character from Die Hard, and he plays him effectively. His character is named Joe Hallenbeck. And Damon Wayans actually stretches a bit as Jimmy Dix in a performance where he occasionally riffs on his stand-up persona, because at the time this movie came out, Damon Wayans was mainly known for being a stand-up comedian and also being on the TV show In Living Color. But he also has to do a lot of the dramatic lifting with a couple of dark monologues. And he does them pretty well. One Sunday, I'm away in Miami. She couldn't come because she was eight months pregnant. Walking down La Brea Boulevard. Out of nowhere, a pickup truck jumped a curb. Pow. Never knew it hit her. She died. <sighs> Alex lived for 17 minutes in an incubator. He fell asleep, had time for one dream, and then he died. Now on a mission to get to the bottom of a conspiracy involving a corrupt football owner and local politician, Helen Beck and Dix end up making a pretty good team. Now they're not quite Riggs and Murtaugh from Lethal Weapon, but they're still pretty good. And our stars were paired behind the scenes with some major players at the time, including the late, great, and one of my favorites, director Tony Scott. Tony Scott had recently directed Top Gun and Days of Thunder. Also, producer Joel Silver, who was the recent producer of the Predator, Die Hard, and Lethal Weapon movies. Yeah, he was basically an action god. Still is. (laughs) And writer Shane Black, who was a well-known screenwriter who wrote the original Lethal Weapon. In 1990, when this film was being made... All four of these guys, Willis, Scott, Silver, and Black, they were all outsized personalities. But even with these big personalities, it all gels together as each of them brought their strengths to the table. The film is well-paced and slick to look at, with a lot of opportunities for well-cast character actors like Bruce McGill, Kim Coates, or Chelsea Ross to make their mark with limited screen time, playing various sleazy elements who our heroes encounter. You got a cigarette? Cigarette? Yeah, sure. Yeah, a got a light yeah really? <laughs> hey baby I thought you were tough see probably he's not so bad <laughs> I have another sure sure thing buddy the light if you touch me again I'll kill you Bumba, Baby! (laughs) Oh baby! Two for two We got a two for two Told you This was Tony Scott's preamble to what I consider his career-best one-two punch, two movies that I just love, right before he directed True Romance and Crimson Tide. And you can tell. There's a looser confidence there in how he allows the film to just take a breath at times, allowing his rogues' gallery of bit players to shine throughout. Everybody gets to have a scene, all the characters get to have moments. The Last Boy Scout also has the coke-fueled bombast of your typical Joel Silver action film from this era. And you can't help but notice, of course, Shane Black's penchant for nasty, cynical, back-and-forth dialogue from his characters. Now, the film tries to touch on some serious subjects at times, but mostly just tries to have fun. And it generally succeeds. You also have nice supporting turns from Halle Berry, Chelsea Field, and especially Danielle Harris, who often steals the movie in the second half as Joe Hallenbach's brash 14-year-old daughter, who inserts herself into the action. At the time of release, I can remember that this film received quite a bit of criticism, for all the nasty stuff that her character is given to say. But as someone who now has a 14-year-old daughter, well, I can now observe that the cursing might be a bit excessive, but the overall attitude might be kind of, sort of, spot on. You want to abuse me some more? Shock me. Come on, I hardly ever hear the word asshole. Oh, bullshit! Hey, that's you enough. You get it all the time! That's enough, Darian. Oh, yeah, what are you going to do, ground me some more? You want it, you got it. Yes, sir, asshole! You ground grounded for a week. Say leave it alone! Hey. You know, he makes his fucking word clear! Hey, you want to talk like a trash mouth? Huh? You want to sound like your mother? Go ahead. It's bad enough that I'm going to hear this shit all day long. I got to come home and get it from you, too? So, come on, let me hear. Let me hear all the really juicy, dirty words. Come on. God, you're such a fuck-up. Darian, you are my daughter, and you are in my house, and you will respect me. You got that? You don't ever call me a fuck-up. Why shouldn't I? Mom calls you one all the time. And that brings me to the categories. The first category is Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. As I stated previously, the opening credit sequence for this movie is actually a faux opening credit sequence for a fictional primetime football program. The singer who we see performing, wearing a linen suit and shades, because it was 1990, is none other than Bill Medley, who you might recognize as part of the duo behind the smash late 80s hit Time of My Life featured prominently during the climax of Dirty Dancing. And beyond that, Bill Medley used to be one half of the huge pop duo The Righteous Brothers, who were most active during the 1960s and 70s, yet some of their most popular songs found second lives years later. Remember You've Lost That Loving Feeling from Top Gun or Unchained Melody from Ghost? Yep, that's them, The Righteous Brothers. Just iconic stuff for sure that was apparently just made for the movies. Well, this time around, Bill Medley has done it again with a theme song called Friday Night is a Great Night for Football, which I have to admit, I still find absurdly catchy. And I would argue was an even better song than the Monday Night Football theme at the time sung by Hank Williams Jr., which apparently this was an homage to. Just a fun country rock ditty featuring a peppy brass section playing throughout along with some rock and electric guitars. It just feels authentic. If this can't get you in the mood to watch football, I don't know what can. And that brings me to the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, this being one of her first prominent roles, Halle Berry plays Corey, the stripper girlfriend of Wayans' Jimmy Dix. And for the first act of this movie, she's actually a major player in the story. She has a few nice scenes with her bantering alongside both Wayans and Willis. And it's actually Corey who has hired Willis's Hallenbeck early on to investigate some creeps who have been making threats to her. But of course, those so-called creeps are part of a larger operation, and disappointingly, her character is violently dispatched within the first 20 minutes. This is pretty much the inciting incident for our two protagonists, Jimmy and Joe, to team up to get to the bottom of this conspiracy. So I get it. This has been a very common trope of action movies, having one major character killed, so two others investigate it. But that said, it's still a bit of a waste of Barry's talents, as it's also established early on that she has kind of a unique Dynamic and relationship with Jimmy, played by Wayans. And who's to say that there might not have been a better way to keep her in the story and progress it forward without her just being quote fridged? Should I pay you now? No, no, you should not pay me now. Put the money away. away, Sit down. So you don't think the cops could help you? Sure. After I'm dead, they'll perform the autopsy. I guess you don't want to wait around that long. Guess not. And that brings us to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Willis and Wayans have good chemistry and several good scenes together. My personal favorite comes relatively early as they're both being questioned and beaten up outside by two goons dispatched by the main villain. The main villain, of course, is Shelley Marconi the owner of the L.A. Stallions, who is played with smarmy glee by Noble Willingham. Now, the lead goon of this particular duo that's beating them up and questioning them, who does most of the talking, is played by the omnipresent, that guy character actor, Jack Keller. And he's great. You've seen this guy as he has literally been, I looked on his IMDb, it's crazy. He has literally been in more than 150 movies and TV shows going back decades. And he usually leaves a mark. And I personally remember him best as the landlord who puts on the one-man dance show in The Big Lebowski, and the squeegee salesman-slash-diehard Red Sox fan who always sits next to Jimmy Fallon at Fenway in the movie Fever Pitch. But he's been a lot of stuff. And the relatively short interaction between him and our two heroes, it's pretty damn funny, as apparently he's using some big words which keep drawing remarks from both Joe and Jimmy. Big words like (laughs) exuberant and untenable. Hey, it was the 90s. Those were considered big words then. This is just a fun sequence, watching our two leads play off of each other, while also outsmarting the bad guys. And and yes, in case you were wondering, Keller's character is only credited as Scrabble Man. How clever. Bit late for a stroll, don't you think? Yeah, you girls ought to be getting home. Yeah, streetlights on. Shut up, fuckface. I'm fuckface. He's asshole. Jake? (laughs) Apprise Rodney Dangerfield here of his situation. (laughs) Perhaps we can dispense with the fun and games now, yes? You want the envelope, right? The envelope, very smart. See, Jake, here's a man who knows when a situation is untenable. Good word. You like that word? And you do have that envelope, don't you? You Better give up, Jimmy. We're dealing with a couple geniuses here. All right, man, just leave him the fuck alone. Leave him alone, sure, whatever you say. Jake attacks his job with a certain exuberance. (sighs) Shit. We're being beat up by the inventor of Scrabble. And that brings me to the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this movie. Even though there was some big-time Hollywood talent and egos working on this film, Scott, Silver, Bruce. At the end of the day, this is more of a Shane Black movie than anything else. It bears his stamp throughout, even to the point where upon release... The film was criticized by some as a none-too-subtle, watered-down, lethal-weapon clone, which it kinda is at times, but it's also just more cynical and brutal to boot. There is no heartwarming time spent with the Murtaugh family at the dinner table this time around. Not when you can have pseudo-alcoholic Joe Hallenbeck trading F-bombs with his teenage daughter while his new partner tries to sneak painkillers nearby in his bathroom. So yeah, this is a different animal than Lethal Weapon. And it's probably not as good either, if I'm being honest but it's still pretty damn entertaining. For all of its tropes and the fact that it kind of peaks early with regards to interesting sequences, because that opening is really hard to top, Shane Black excelled once again at crafting a pretty tightly structured story built around corruption, murder, and brotherhood, with loads of action and, of course, his signature R-rated banter. At his peak, there was just nobody better at this than Shane Black. At the end of the day, he wrote a fun screenplay providing the meat for a fun action comedy. Even though he had some adept collaborators, Shane Black is your MVP. Leather pants. Yeah. What's something like that, right? 650 $650. Yeah. They're pants. Yeah. You wear them? Yes. Did I have like a TV in them or something? Nope. I'm very old. My rating for The Last Boy Scout would be three stars out of five. (laughs) Despite never quite living up to the dramatic promise of its opening scenes, The Last Boy Scout still remains one of the more rewatchable action comedies of the 1990s. Happy 30th anniversary. And remember, the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. And if you're looking for The Last Boy Scout, it's currently streaming on Netflix. And that ends another untenable review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema.